Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the exclusivity of God. So we've already talked about God's existence, and uh, last week we talked about the aseity of God, that he has existence in and of himself, that he's independent. Uh, today we're going to look at, kind of move from there to say God is the only one, uh, the only God who exists. First Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 and verse 9 uh, says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of receptation we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Okay, so according to the Bible, there are idols, and there is the one true living God. Uh, this is why in Paul's mind, there was no, uh, no problem eating meat that was offered to idols. If you're familiar with the New Testament, uh, especially Romans and 1 Corinthians, you'll know this was a controversy about whether it was acceptable as Christians to eat meat that had been previously offered to idols. And in Paul's mind, this wasn't a problem because idols aren't real. <laughs> and so the, eat, uh, the meat was in no way uh, defiled or anything. It was just offered before a rock and go ahead and eat it. It's meat just like anything else. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 4, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And so his point there is that idols have no real existence, uh, the other so-called gods are fake, and therefore uh, it's not a problem to eat this meat because there is only one God who truly exists. This view of monotheism was very unique to Judaism and then Christianity. Uh, at the time, whether you were talking about the, the Greeks or the Romans uh, or even the Egyptians, they were polytheistic societies. So they believed in many, many gods, and at, at times... Uh, literally thousands of gods. You had a, a god for all sorts of different things. So a god that was over weather, a god that was over, I don't know, safety, uh, whatever. Um, and so that was the, the common view of that day. Judaism was really the first monotheistic religion that postulated that the, the existence of only one god. Um, now we're going to take a little bit of a rabbit trail here. I promise this does relate to exclusivity. We'll come back to that. But I want to talk about the captivity a little bit. Uh, one of the pivotal moments in the Old Testament uh, was the exile. Okay, this is when the Jews are, are taken captive by the Babylonians. They're carried off to Babylon. You know the story where Nebuchadnezzar uh, comes in and they, they basically wipe out Jerusalem, destroy the temple, uh, steal all of the vessels from the temple, and he takes them to, the, to his own, uh, basically, worship place for his gods. Um, and then he also steals some of the people from Israel. Daniel is uh, one of the more well-known. That's how Daniel begins. He's a young man, probably a teenager, and he and his friends get stolen from their homeland in Israel and carried off uh, as basically as captives to Babylon. And the story of the book of Daniel is how this young man uh, named Daniel lives the rest of his life in this foreign land of Babylon. Uh, the exile was one of the most tragic moments in Jewish history. Their temple was gone. It was destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem was a ghost town and the Jews were now slaves in a pagan land. And this captivity lasted 70 years. Uh, there were a few different kings who came and went during this time. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar was the first one who actually took them into captivity. Uh, but then as you read in Daniel, you have other kings that come up like Darius. Uh, and then eventually King Cyrus becomes king over the Persian Empire. 
And so the Jews are still there. They're being held captive. And Cyrus is the new king. Uh, the kids like Daniel, who had been taken from their homeland, this is 70 years later. Most of them are dead, uh, but those who are alive are very old at this point in time. And so this generation of Jews that was born in Persia uh, had no memory of what it was like to live in Israel. Most of them had never seen the temple. Uh, they'd never seen Jerusalem. They'd been in this pagan land their whole lives. But then King Cyrus does something very strange. Uh, if you read the book of Ezra, or even the end of, I think, Second Chronicles, uh, Ezra decides to let the people go back to their land. I'm sorry, not Ezra. Am I saying Ezra? Cyrus. King Cyrus uh, makes a decree and says, okay, you Jews that we've held captive for 70 years, I want you to go back to Israel, rebuild your temple, uh, just go back and be free. And in fact, he even funds the whole operation. Um, so he not only lets the, the, slave, the, the, the enslaved uh, Israelites go back to their homeland, he, he constructs their temple for them. And he gives them back all of the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple. And so if you're just reading this um, in the book of Ezra, there's not really an explanation as to why. And you may be thinking, what in the world is going on here? Why would a pagan king uh, that does not worship the God of Israel uh, suddenly say, I want you guys to go back to your homeland, reestablish your, your, your nation, and, uh, and I'll even pay for you to rebuild your temple. What's going on there? Uh, this brings us to Isaiah 44. Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus would do this over a century before he was born. You need to understand that the prophet Isaiah uh, wrote 150 years before Cyrus. Okay, so this is well in advance of King Cyrus, uh, actually well in advance of the captivity to begin with, because it's only 70 years. So this is pre-captivity. Isaiah is writing about King Cyrus, and he writes, Isaiah actually calls him by name. Okay, he actually says Cyrus before Cyrus is ever a thought, before his grandparents are born. He calls him by name and says, you're, go you're going to be king, and you're going to let the Israelites go back and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. We'll pick it up in verse 24. This is where God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by himself. You see there the, the emphasis on the exclusivity of God. Uh, I did this alone. I did this by myself. Verse 25, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools uh, of uh, diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. And so there you see the prophecy uh, of God that someday in the future, when Isaiah is a ghost town and when, uh, I'm sorry, when Jerusalem is a ghost town, when the temple is destroyed, uh, I'm going to rebuild that. I'm going to make sure Jerusalem goes back to being inhabited by my people. I'm going to rebuild uh, the temple and the walls there. Verse 27, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, and again, Cyrus is not born. Cyrus's parents are not born. This is 150 years before. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So God calls Cyrus out by name before he even exists, much less as a king. And God says, I've appointed this king in Persia whose name is Cyrus, and he is going to fulfill all of my purpose. He's going to order the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, the next verse is, there's a chapter division there, but it's carrying along the same lines there. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 45, 
Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Okay, so now he's speaking to King Cyrus. 150 years later, he's talking to him and he says, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Uh, verse 2, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the barns of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Jacob, who call you by your name. And you see, you'll see this emphasis as we go throughout. He keeps saying, I'm calling you by name. Uh, I know who you are before you're even born. Verse 4, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I have called you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. Okay, so imagine being Cyrus and receiving this letter, knowing that it was written over a century before your birth. And here is God speaking to you, and you see your name there. Uh, that this is a letter actually written to you. And God says, I've chosen you. I've appointed you to do all of this for the sake of my people, Israel, who've been held uh, captive in your land for these 70 years. And notice at the end there, God says, I've called you by name, even though you don't know me. Okay, Cyrus was not a follower of the God of Israel. Cyrus was a Persian. And at this point, we need to talk a little bit about Zoroastrianism. Is anybody familiar with Zoroastrianism at all? Malachi, okay. Um, most people don't know about this. It's actually one of the top 10 religions in the world still today. Um, but it's not prevalent enough, I guess, in America that we're really familiar with it. Uh, Zoroastrianism was the religion of the state religion of Persia. Okay. So this is kind of like, um, if you go back to the middle ages, the state religion of, you know, most of Europe was Roman Catholicism, right? So that anybody who was in government, uh, in those countries was a Roman Catholic and at times was even really a leader. Um, like, especially, I guess the Anglican Church is a better example. Um, whoever was over England at the time, King Henry or King James or Elizabeth, whoever it was, uh, they were the pontiff for Roman Catholicism. And it's the same type of thing going on in Persia. So whoever was king of Persia was also pontiff of Zoroastrianism, which was the state religion of the Persian Empire. So at this point in time, Cyrus is king of Persia, and he is therefore the leader of Zoroastrianism. Um, and Isaiah 45 You'll miss a lot if you don't understand just some basic things about the religion. Zoroastrianism was created by Zoroaster, uh, who believed in two divine beings. Okay, so this is not polytheistic. Uh, they don't believe in many gods. It's also not monotheistic. They, they believed in two gods. Uh, basically, a good god and a bad god. <laughs> um, Ahura Mazda was the good god. It means a wise lord. And then Angra Mainyu, which means evil spirit, he was the bad god. And so Angra Mainyu is the uh, adversarial force of the religion. He's the direct opponent of Ahura Mazda. Now, Ahura Mazda was from the rising of the sun. Angra Mainyu was from the west. And in the opening chapter of the Avesta, which is the Zoroastrianism uh, scriptures, there's a creation account. And basically, this is how Zoroastrianism accounts for everything that exists. That is basically... Uh, Ahura Mazda creates the good stuff, and Angra creates the bad stuff. And they, they kind of counter-create things as they go throughout this narrative. So if you read the first chapter of the Zoroastrian uh, Bible called the Avesta, Ahura Mazda creates light, and then Angra comes back and creates darkness. Ahura Mazda creates peace, and Angra uh, creates calamity. They go back and forth like that until 
everything that exists was created. I think the only exception was uh, humanity. Anger, mind you, couldn't come up with anything that was a direct parallel to that or something like that. It was kind of confusing when I read it. Um, but basically, the good God created the good things, and then the bad God created all the opposite uh, bad things. Uh, this was the religion that Cyrus would have been raised in. And as king of Persia, like I said, this was the state religion. He would have been the leader of Zoroastrianism at the time. Now let's keep reading in Isaiah 45 what God goes on to say uh, to Cyrus. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Now notice this language. This is incredible. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Okay, he is directly refuting the opening verses of the Zoroastrian Bible. He's saying there is no other God. There's not these two gods who created uh, some good things, some bad things. There's not a good God from the West and, and a good God from the rising of the sun. No, I am the God and there is none else. There is no other God but me. This is a direct refutation of Cyrus's religion. So God is saying to Cyrus, there isn't two gods. I'm the only one and I created everything. I created the good stuff and I created the bad stuff. Now, um, another thing to note here, Zoroastrianism became the state religion of Persia around 600 BC. Uh, Zoroaster himself lived in the 6th century BC, which means God is here in Isaiah 45 refuting Cyrus's religion of Zoroastrianism not only 150 years before Cyrus was born, but also before Zoroastrianism was even a religion and before the founder, Zoroaster, was even born. Okay, so God not only calls out this king by name uh, before he ever exists, and he says, let my people out of captivity before the people are ever in captivity, and he even goes as far as to refute the opening page of his Bible before the Bible, their Bible was ever even written. I mean, come on. Uh, this is pretty legit stuff. Now, again, imagine being Cyrus, and seeing all of this in a letter that you know was written 150 years before your birth. I mean, that would be pretty shocking <laughs> to open that up and realize, whoa, uh, whoever this guy is, he's serious. Um, Isaiah 45, verse 12, a little further down, it says, I made the Lord and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. And so there's again a direct prophecy that God will stir it up uh, in the heart of King Cyrus to let the Jews uh, in exile go free, rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Verse 18 of the same chapter, thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth and declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. And you see the point that he's making there. Hey, if I can predict all of this, 
uh, way in advance of any of it happening, this should be convincing enough to you that I'm the real God and there's nobody else. I continue on verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Okay, so he points to his ability to predict all of these future events as proof that he is the only true God. Now, who else has declared in advance all of these things? The answer is no one. Therefore, there is no other God. Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Okay, so God proves his exclusivity by predicting the future events. And this is a perfect example of this is King Cyrus. I mean, how else could you know all of this? How else could you know uh, that a couple of parents living in Persia would name their little baby boy Cyrus and that he would end up being king and that he would end up being a Zoroastrian? And before the religion even existed, how else can you explain this? Uh, and God says, well, this is evidence that I am the one true God. Now, uh, back to Cyrus just for a minute, and then we'll move on from that. Uh, it seems that most likely what happened, what caused Cyrus to let Israel go back uh, from exile to Jerusalem is somebody brought him this prophecy. Somebody showed him, God is talking directly to you by name before your birth. Read this. Um, the, the, in fact, uh, Josephus, the Roman historian, says that's what happened, that uh, he was presented with these chapters in Isaiah and, and was convinced of it. Um, and most likely, if you want to theorize, uh, Daniel would have been a good prospect to give this to him. Daniel was a high-ranking government official. He would have had the king's ear. Um, and so it's, it seems reasonable that Daniel would have been the one to present this to him. In fact, uh, Daniel 6.28 says that this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So we know that he was still in government uh, at the time of the reign of King Cyrus. So that's my hunch, is that Daniel uh, brought a copy of this letter uh, written a century before Cyrus and, and gave it to him and showed him basically that, that God predicted his existence as king 150 years ago, called him by name, and we know this had an impact on Cyrus because of what he did. He did exactly uh, what God had predicted. Ezra 1 verse 1 says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, that, the Lord, uh, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, here's his declaration, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, uh, in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So all that to say, uh, obviously this is cool stuff, right? That, that basically... This prediction that God gave to Cyrus convinced him. Uh, I don't know if he became a true follower of, of the God of Israel or not, but at least he let them go, uh, let them out of captivity and said, go back, rebuild your temple, I'll even fund the whole operation. Uh, and what would cause a pagan king to do that? Obviously, he, he, he was persuaded by, this, uh, by these prophecies. But all of that to say, God makes clear in the Old Testament that he is the one true God. Uh, there is no room in Christianity for some other being out there that is in any way uh, analogous to God. One more text on this, Isaiah 41. This is known as the trial of the false gods, where uh, God is basically 
opposing anybody who would claim that, that there's another being out there like him. Isaiah 41 verse 21 says, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, uh, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, an abomination is he who chooses you. And so this is God just mocking uh, the false gods that were propagated at the time. Isaiah repeatedly throughout his uh, prophecies makes the argument that the mark of the one true God is his ability to know the future and predict it accurately. Uh, only the true God can predict, uh, can know the future. And any God who cannot do this is not God. Uh, that, that's Isaiah's point. You cannot claim to believe the Bible and also believe that there might be other gods. Christianity has no room for that. You cannot say, uh, I, I believe in the God of the Bible and the God of uh, these other religions, because the God of the Bible says, I'm the only one. Uh, I'm always amazed at people in this postmodern society we live in now that want to hold on to just everything and say, well, all roads lead to heaven, all religions are true. Um, you might be able to do that with some religions, but our religion says there's no one else. And so to, to say that you hold both is just illogically impossible. You need to either let go of Christianity and, and just hold on to all the other stuff uh, or embrace Christianity as true because the Bible simply says this cannot be the case. Nothing could be clearer in Scripture than the exclusivity of God. Um, I do have a couple other things we're going to talk about, but we may... Uh, let's take a little bit of time for discussion. Any questions or anything that uh, you'd like to talk about from the exclusivity of God? Well, um, first of all, some have actually claimed that this is a different Isaiah than, than you know, the Isaiah that we know about in Scripture to get around the dating problem, those who just refuse to accept that God can predict the future. I would say, first of all, the whole point of the prophecy in its context is God predicts the future. And so he gives an example of predicting the future. So, in other words... If you claim to be a Christian and you're trying to just get around the miraculous here, you really have to throw out the whole book of Isaiah because it is set in in the context of I'm the only God because of my ability to predict the future. Um, now, if you're talking about like an atheist or something like that, at some point, I, you know, they're, they're probably not going to accept it. <laughs> this is not something I would bring to an atheist as proof of Christianity because they're just going to dismiss it and say, you know, it was tweaked later on or something like that. Um I would say, you know, again, history does tell... Well, let's think about this. First of all, Cyrus being king of Persia at this time and uh, letting Israel go is a historical fact. We don't have to rely on the Bible for that. There's outside information. So the question is, why would a pagan king do this? <laughs> you have slave labor. Uh, why would you not only let them go back, give them all of their treasures back, fund their operation to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple? Why would you do that? Um, this gives us a great explanation for why. And if you're saying this was written after the fact, you have to answer that question. Why is the pagan king doing this? Um, and then you do have some historical data like Josephus 
Um, now Josephus was, you know, obviously a couple hundred years later, so he's not present during that reign, but he did say that uh, this letter was presented to uh, Cyrus. Um, so yeah, I mean, ultimately it's not going to convince an atheist probably, but I do think the big question that you have to ask if you're going to throw out Isaiah is how do you explain uh, why a pagan king would do all of that and be so gracious to his slaves? <laughs> um, aside from that, there's no evidence that the, the book of Isaiah dates any later than 150 years before Cyrus. There's absolutely zero evidence. So, you know, it, it's pretty much an open and shut case if you're just looking at the evidence for the book. Catherine, go ahead. Right. And Josephus is, just so you know, he's not a Christian or anything like that. He's not trying to prove the Bible. He's just a historian. Um, now, historians are not infallible, so they can write stuff that's not true all the time. But there is definitely outside evidence that this, this did take place. Anything else? Okay. Um, we're going to move on to the spirituality of God. <clears throat> the spirituality of God. Grudem defines this as... Uh, in his systematic theology, he says God's spirituality means that God exists as a being that is not made of any matter. He has no parts or dimensions, is unable to be perceived by our bodily senses, and is more excellent than any other kind of existence. Okay, so when we say God's spirituality, we are referring to uh, the fact that he's not a human, he doesn't have a body, uh, he, is, he is spirit. And if you just want to a proof text for this, John 4, 24. This is the story where Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. And he, said, he says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, so God is spirit. He is uh, non-corporeal, meaning he does not have a body. Luke 24, verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, this is Jesus speaking. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So obviously Jesus had a body in his incarnation. He became a human being. Uh, but he defines there a spirit as something that does not have flesh and bones. And so if God is a spirit and spirits don't have any sort of physical form, then it follows God doesn't either. It is because of this reality that God so strongly condemns making physical images of himself. God is spirit. He has no form, no physical body. So it's wrong for us to make any image of God because to do so is to degrade him. Uh, this is something you'll find throughout the Old Testament. Not only does God say, uh, don't make graven images of other gods and worship them. Okay, He says that many times. But he also says, don't make any likeness of me. Don't draw me. Don't make a sculpture of me. Just don't, I don't, even if you're trying to make me, don't do that. Okay, Deuteronomy 4 uh, verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that is in the air, the likeness of any, anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the sea. A few verses later, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When, you're, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, 
by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, so as to provoke him, uh, Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger. Uh, there's a reason this is in the Ten Commandments. Okay, the first of the ten is, you shall have no gods before me. And then the second one is, don't make any graven images and worship that. Okay, you would think, well, that's covered under the first one. But God is emphasizing the fact he does not want us doing this. Uh, I, I, in fact, I think as I read the Bible, one of the things that makes God most angry is when people worship some physical representation of God, like the golden calf story. Um, when God comes down from the mountain and the people are worshiping this golden calf and saying, this is the God who led us out of Egypt, which is obviously Yahweh, and they're claiming that it's this uh, golden calf that they've made. God decides he's so angry he's going to wipe them all out. And then you know the story, Moses intercedes uh, and pleads on their behalf, and God says, okay, I'm not going to destroy them. But then Moses goes down, he beats the golden calf, he melts it, beats it into powder, mixes it with water, and makes the people drink it. Okay, that's how angry uh, they were at the fact that they did this. God gets very upset when people make images to represent him. And I think we should be very careful of this. I'm not a big fan of pictures of God, uh, pictures of Jesus. Now, Jesus is a little different because he was a human, fine. He had a real body, okay, maybe. Uh, but even that, I'm just a little bit worried of that stuff. Um, even like the, the pictures that, that I have on our Journey with Jesus uh, series cover there, his face isn't there, and that's purposeful. I just don't like that. Um, I'm okay with, I don't know. There's certain things I'm okay with, but it's just, there's certain things I'm a little bit concerned that uh, sometimes, you know, I've had a Bible where the front cover, there's a picture of Jesus. Obviously, it's not him. Um, or, or just pictures of God in general. I don't know. Not a big fan of that. I'm not saying it's terrible if somebody else does it. I just, I'm a little bit scared to, uh, to broach those things. And I understand we're not bowing down to them as idols. We're not claiming this as God. But God doesn't just say, don't worship graven images. He says, don't make any likeness of me. Don't, don't do that. Uh, the spirituality of God is the basis for his omnipresence. Uh, because he does not exist in a body that has limited spatial dimensions, um, that is basically the basis for how we can say he's everywhere. If, in other words, if God had a form, if he had a body, he would be limited to the dimensions of that body. Okay, the fact that God is spirit uh, allows him to permeate throughout all of space. Um, we'll talk about that more when we get to omnipresence, but spirituality of God also leads to the invisibility of God. Because God does not exist in physical form, he therefore is not able to be seen by physical eyes. 1 Timothy 6.15, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Uh, there are some instances in which some physical form was seen by people, but it was not God the Father. In those instances in the Old Testament, for example, Isaiah 6 seems to be uh, Christophanes, that is an, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Okay, and we get this, there's several texts we can look at to kind of prove this. Hold on to your question just one minute. Uh, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. By the way, some manuscripts there read the only son who is at the Father's side uh, instead of the only God. Um, most modern translations will say God, and that's not just because they're trying to you know, affirm the deity of Jesus. It's actually a textual variant. So uh, God in Greek is theos. Uh, son in Greek is huios. 
And if you look at it, it's it's very slight difference between the two words. And so a scribe somewhere made the wrong uh, move one way or the other. The question is which one's original. Um, manuscript evidence seems to suggest that God is the original. That's not super relevant to our point. Uh, my point is here, it, either way you read that, um, John is saying nobody's ever seen God the Father, okay, but God the Son, who is at the Father's side, speaking of Jesus, he's the one who's made him known. So when people see a, some physical form of the divine being in the Old Testament, uh, this is a, a display of Jesus Christ. Okay, so nobody's ever seen God the Father, and that's explicit throughout the New Testament. Uh, John 6, 46 would be another text. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So the only one who's seen the Father is Jesus, is what he's saying there. No one has seen the Father, only Jesus. Colossians 1 says of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God. All right, uh, questions? Catherine, you had your hand raised. Good. Okay. What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Um, well, we're actually going to get to that. We're not going to have time to today. We have to cover that next time. Um, I would say, first of all, a lot of it is, it's not that we look like God. Okay. I know that's kind of a common way of thinking of it. That being in the image of God means uh, we somehow resemble God physically. I don't think that's right. Um, I think we have God's intellect. We have God's will. We have God's emotions. The things that differentiate um, humanity from animals, for instance. We have the ability to communicate. Um, we have a lot of things that are God's image in us. That doesn't mean, I, I don't think there's a physical feature there. I don't think we can say God looks like us. Yeah, well, I for one thing, I'd have to kind of look at the Hebrew there. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't know the word off the top of my head. Um, I guess I kind of think of it as um, a representation of God, that we represent God on earth. In other words, when God created the world initially, you have animals and then you have humans. And what does God say to, to Adam and Eve? You're made in my image, now subdue the world. Rule it. Uh, reign over the, the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, you know, subdue and rule over the earth. Um, and I think in that way, we are to represent God in the way that we live. I don't think it's that there's a physical thing. So I know it doesn't answer all the questions. When we get to, in our statement of faith, we're going to get to the subject of man. Um, and at that point, I'll probably have read a few more books on the subject, and we'll have a more clarified answer. But for now, I would say definitely there's not a physical thing. God doesn't look like me. <laughs> God doesn't have any sort of uh, you know, physical forms like that. Um, and the language in Scripture, in case you're thinking this, I don't know, the language in Scripture that speaks of uh, the arm of the Lord or whatever like that, this is anthropomorphic language, as we talked about before. In other words, God says things, uh, we would call it personification, I guess, that God will use... Um, Means of communication that are not meant to be taken literally. So I, I used the example before. When God says that the earth is his footstool, that doesn't mean he literally has feet and that he's literally propping them up on our earth. Okay, that's not the point. The point is that he is the king of the world. That's all that's trying to say. It's just a metaphor uh, to give us that image. So don't take those things literally when you see, um, you know, the outstretched arm of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord run to and forth. It's not his eyeballs moving around. He doesn't have eyeballs. So... Uh, any other questions on 
Uh, anything we talk about? We've got a couple more minutes before we have to close. Any questions? Anything stand out to you about what we've talked about today? Or just anything you'd like to discuss? I don't want to move on to the next subject because uh, it's kind of a good stopping point here. Okay. No, you're good. Well, that's a delicate subject. Um, we got to be careful how we speak of the Trinity. So, so, so here, here's how I would say it: Jesus and the Father are both God, yes, but Jesus is not the Father, yes. So, in other words, um, if you had a specific question, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Mm-hmm. Seeing the Father. Oh, yeah. Well, if you expect me to answer that question, I'm sorry. I'm going to disappoint. Uh, People have been trying to understand the Trinity for thousands of years. It is a difficult concept. Um, What we can say from Scripture definitively is Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit are all God. Okay, But Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. So there's a distinction between the persons of the Trinity. That's why you can see, uh, for example, in the Gospels, Jesus prays to his Father. He's not talking to himself. So he's talking to something distinct from him. And yet, the Bible also says that they're, they're all God. So the question then is, in what sense are they the same, and in what sense are they different? Um, and historically, the language that has been used, and this may not help you at all, but it's just what we have, um, is that God is one in essence and three in person. So he is one being that subsists in three persons. And, and we're going to talk about that more when we get to the Trinity. But at the end of the day, all we can say is, we don't understand this fully. There's just no way to. Right. Yeah. So we, we will talk in depth about the Trinity when we get there uh, in a few weeks. But yes, it is important to note that there is a distinction between the Son and the Father. So like you said, if, God, if, if the Son can see the Father and there's those relationships, obviously they're not the same person. Um, and yet we, we believe that they're both divine, that they're both God. And so we'll talk about that more in a few weeks, and I'll do my best to answer questions on the Trinity. But honestly, that's one of those subjects. I, whenever I talk about the Trinity, I feel like an amateur because, you know, you just you never get it, and you never can answer all the questions. Um, but we'll do the best we can in a few weeks.